Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And before we get started here, I've just got one quick note for you. In two weeks, so that's May 24th, on this very Blister podcast, we are finally firing up again the Blister Book Club, and I am really looking forward to this episode because I am going to be discussing with my friend and amazing athlete and all-around amazing guy, Andrew Alexander King. I'm going to be discussing with Andrew the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. So two things here. First, if you haven't listened to that Blister podcast conversation that I had with Andrew, please do that between now and the next couple of weeks. It's episode number 159, and it is a phenomenal conversation. Second, if you'd like to pick up a copy and start reading the meditations, which I would encourage every human being of all time to do, we've included a link in the show notes to this episode to an article that discusses a couple recommended editions and translations of the meditations and good news there are several very good very inexpensive editions out there and i also say more in today's episode about how this whole thing came up in the first place and why andrew and i are going to be talking about this little book that is both really really simple and straightforward and also really profound. So that will be happening in two weeks, but now I am happy to be joined by another friend of mine to once again review some of the news related to the outdoor industry. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Cody Townsend. Well, Cody, how are you today and where are you today? Always the the good question because pretty much everything I every time we've done this pod I think I'm somewhere different and I am somewhere different again. Um, actually down in Santa Cruz right now, hometown, uh, in the house I kind of grew up in, and uh, I'm doing okay. I'm a little tired that you know I'm at sea level, but I slept at about. 14,700 feet last night in a hypoxico tent while I'm trying to acclimatize for a, for an upcoming trip. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of, you get worked from sleeping at that elevation and I've been adapting to it, but like that's the whole point of trying to adapt to it is you got to push it and push yourself hard. So yeah, a little tired this morning. Um, not as, not as bad as I've done some mornings. So that'll make for a better podcast. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to hear more about that. Tell us about your current sleeping situation. Yeah, so hyperbaric is like pressure, you know, and that's where you put the whole thing gets pressurized. People do it for a lot of, um, you know, hyperbaric chambers have a lot of different uses, but a hypoxic tent or uh, the company I'm work, uh, using is a hypoxico. Um, it doesn't deal with pressure. It just deals with oxygen rate. So um, you plug into this big machine that essentially that's what you start breathing out of. So I'm in a tent, I'm in this head tent and there's just this tube that's coming out of the machine and it's regulating the amount of oxygen that's actually going inside this tent. And then you base that on what elevation you're at. So, you know, at uh, about 14 to 15,000 feet, you're at an 11% oxygen rate. Whereas if you're at sea level, you're at about a 20% oxygen rate. So in that board, so I'm like almost cutting my oxygen rate in half to try and uh, acclimatize. I'm like during that process, your body's building red, red blood cells. And so it can 
more efficiently transport oxygen to your muscles. So, so yeah, that's kind of the, the main difference is just oxygen versus pressure. And by the way, I just want to say that um, I'm actually supposed to be in Portland, Oregon right now, seeing some very close friends of mine. And I actually last minute pulled the plug on that trip. We were going to do some volcano skiing. The weather was just not going to be cooperating today in the next couple days. So I, I found myself really sympathizing with you. Like it really bummed me out not to go see these friends of mine, Nate and Jamie. I was like, wow, Cody has to do this all the time, like perpetually. And like, I'm bummed about this one little trip. <laughs> and I'm like, it, I don't know. I, I found myself sympathizing or empathizing more with you, uh, you know, in the last couple of days. Yeah, that's pretty much my my life. Um, but the <laughs> Your whole life. Yeah, the, the difference too is like I'd actually be in Portland trying to make yeah. it happen because I saw a weather window and then I'd be like, damn, we got shut down. And you're like, okay, where do we go next? We're like, shit, let's drive to Montana. And you know, like that's, yeah, it's it's definitely part of part of what we do. Yeah. Shout out to my friends, Nate and Jamie. I'm really sorry I'm not with you guys right now. We're going to find another window here. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get this done. On that note, let's go ahead and review the news as we are supposed to do. Cody, what should we kick off with today here? Well, uh, trying to dig it up from from April, you know, we're trying to push these podcasts more to when they were supposed <laughs> right. to be. And so, you know, I was able to catch up a little bit. So we always have like tighter publication, but actually closer to April. Um, so one of the articles that kind of like piqued some interest that I saw kind of going around was from the L.A. Times um, and the L.A. Times uh, by this uh, journalist, Sammy Roth. Um, here's the headline. How did REI spend Earth Month? glorifying a gas-guzzling SUV. And so it was kind of this bit of a hit piece, I would say, in a certain way of talking about REI, which is, a, you know, a champion of the environment who framed it as such as saying they, they, they talk about the environment a lot and talk about climate change. But then here they are doing an advertisement about the Ford Bronco. And right off the bat, like the the headline itself, you're like, it's definitely grabs you like a headline is supposed to do and supposed to bring you in. But it's obviously disingenuous to start with because it's a gas guzzling SUV. You know, the the Ford Bronco itself, I believe, has like 24 to 27 miles per gallon. I don't know if that qualifies as a gas guzzler anymore. Maybe, you know, maybe it will. But um, it was this whole piece that was just kind of like kind of just trying to point a finger at REI for being hypocritical. You know, I kind of get that kind of thing, but I also felt like I'm like, man, this is like, it was like an article about like uh, catching a vegetarian eating a steak one night and like, cool, let's do a big write up because we saw this guy who says he's a, a vegetarian and we saw him eating a steak one night. So I kind of thought it was a bit bullshit um, just because it's like part of that that thing about climate change and climate change journalism that like doesn't necessarily add that much value to to solutions to changing. Because like from my experience, you know, as a owner of Arcade Belts who deals with REI, REI by far has the most stringent supplier demands of anybody like when you uh in order to be sold there you have to fill out so many forms about your supply chains you have to sh you have to show that you're doing some give back component you have to show 
practically exactly what your carbon footprint is of, of your company and your product. They are incredibly stringent when it comes to environmental standards to the point where like, as it comes from a retailer, they're leading the charge for everyone else. So I've looked at REI as being one of the solutions, part of the uh, company that is like leading kind of like Patagonia. To me, like this article, like, yeah, you could rip this about Patagonia. You'd be like, you know, the same thing is like, you know, Patagonia, they're doing amazing things. But like they also drove to Tahoe for the weekend to shoot a video. What are they doing? And so you're like, oh, come on. Like there's so many more fingers to point at, you know, companies that are doing way worse damage. But since they're not talking about climate change, we don't write about them. That's kind of where I, I I just got pretty annoyed with this article in general. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, I kind of doubt that this particular author chose that headline. It was probably it. This is what often happens at publications, right? It's like some editor comes in and finds the most clickbaity thing possible. So I don't know, maybe maybe I'm not right about that. Yeah, no, you were you were 100% right. My mom was a journalist and she would get uh, pissed off at what the copy editors would write for headlines. And you're like, come on, you know, so no, that is correct. Journalists do not have control of the headlines. And the headline was definitely very clickbaity, which it worked, got me in there and got me pissed off. You know, sadly, I don't think you and I are going to you know, solve this issue, you know, in the next several minutes here. But it definitely points to, I think, like a massive, longstanding, perhaps eternal societal question of like, how do you actually affect real change? And, you know, there's there's a bit of like, there's push and pull here, right? So on the one hand, hypocrisy is just straight up bad, right? However, we're going to define hypocrisy. I don't think anybody is going to be like, no, no, there are times when being hypocritical turns out that's a, that's a good thing to be. And yet, you know, we have talked a bit, I mean, frankly, you and I have talked just this week, right? You know, not on a podcast about certain things where certain People on social media were calling folks out about stuff and the charge of hypocrisy in particular. And, you know, I actually had a conversation recently, I think, with Cassie Abel on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast where we talk a bit about sort of cancel culture, right? And on the one hand, we have these issues of like cancel culture. On the other hand, it's like, hey, shouldn't we be calling out hypocrisy, right? And it seems to me that it would be great if we could somehow figure out or maybe even teach how to call out hypocrisy or just raise a question about it in such a way where we don't turn this into a game of like, ooh, Cody just said something or did something. I'm going to go load my gun and try to, you know, cut him off at the knees or something. Like, what what are we doing here? And And... And how do we do this in a, say, more appropriate way, right? And look, at a, at a political level, if it's Republicans calling out, you know, Democrats for hypocrisy or vice versa, like, how do we do this in a way that's actually productive and not just this lame, shitty, you know, self-righteous type of things that, you know, maybe isn't as effective it could be as 
in, in terms of affecting the change that we actually, you know, that would be positive and that we would all sort of see as positive. Thoughts on this? I'm dropping that big question on you. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, I think, when it comes to the specifics of hypocrisy and climate change, like currently everyone is a hypocrite and there's no possible way to not be a hypocrite. So in this instance, you're like, yeah, maybe it's not the best look to be doing a car advertisement at this time, whatever. There was probably some financial incentive for REI to do this. But ultimately, you're like, yeah, it's maybe not the best look. But they're hypocritical by just existing. We are all hypocritical by just existing. So just by pointing out hypocrisy when it comes to climate change, it's not to me that you're pointing out like actual hypocrisy. You're just pointing out that this person's an advocate for it because there's no pointing out of fingers of uh, company X that has never said a word about climate change and is not trying to do anything. There's not an article that goes like, hey, software company X who runs server farms has never said anything about climate change and they're putting, you know, a massive carbon footprint out there. We don't see that kind of uh, article that comes out there. This article only comes out if you're talking about climate change and or trying to do something. Um, I always pointed out like, you know, the, the athletes that are talking about climate change are subject to these kind of attacks very, very often. But if you, you know, have never talked about climate change, you run a snowmobile every day, you pretty much drink like motor oil for breakfast and like flying helicopters all the time, you'll never be subject to those attacks. So to me, it's not a, it's a, not a subject of like pointing out hypocrisy because there's no option to be unhypocritical in a in this debate it's just a pointing out that you're actually talking about it so that's where i I don't like about it because it kind of in a certain way disincentivizes people being public about their actions public about what they want to see happen that's what i end up not liking about these kind of articles i do say Yes, again, maybe it wasn't the best look for them. Maybe you should point that out. But it's still, to me, disincentivizes any sort of progress to a point where I'm like, that's where I don't find articles like this very useful. Yeah. So specifically bringing it back to this specific article. I, one of the other things I just want to point out is, you know, Ford in particular, you know, Bill Ford or as in William Clay Ford Jr., I think there would be no disagreement on this. Bill Ford has been one of the loudest voices of anybody in the auto industry for like one of the first, I'd say, in terms of saying like, hey, as an industry, we need to do better now. Right. Tesla came along. They just skipped the whole combustion engine thing. And, you know, props to Elon Musk and Tesla for sort of pushing, I think, the electric vehicle thing more forward. But I think this is just one of the like nuances in a kind of call-out piece like this, where it's like, all right, they're partnering with Ford. This is not an electric vehicle. By the way, electric vehicles, it's not like these are crystal clean vehicles. I just think it is the next step. It is an evolution from the combustion engine. But it is also just interesting. It's like Ford has been of the large auto manufacturers, arguably one of the best, or at least, you know, one of the most concerned in terms of trying to put together a roadmap to get us to a cleaner auto industry. (laughs) 
So I, I don't know, man. I, I just, I think that's why I hesitate to be on the side of these, like, let's start slinging arrows. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's always like kind of, you can, we're participating in slinging arrows, just like the journalist was slinging arrows at this. Um, it's just more the, the, the kind of debate of bringing up that, like, you know, sometimes we, you know, what are we, what are we focusing on? What is going to be the best course of action to actually change things, <laughs> change our climate for the better and get it back to a more normal state and to, instead of this rapidly es- escalating disaster that we're starting to see unfold before our very eyes. So yeah, no, it's interesting bringing up with Ford. I mean, I think Ford was the only major company that didn't join the lawsuit of California that was enacting, you know, California putting new mileage standards on there. Um, you know, I, it's, I just look at it as like, look, we're all trying to do better. Um, and yeah, I think journalism should point out at times like, hey, if this if this company is just talking about it and not actually doing anything, then we should point that out. But that's where my experience of dealing with as a supplier with REI, I see a lot of stuff on the back end that they're doing really positively. And that's what I didn't see in the article. It didn't kind of it kind of framed REI as just talking about climate change, not stuff that they're actually trying to do. Yeah. So that was my kind of thing. And I kind of like looked at it. I was like, well, what if they did, you know, instead of Ford, what if REI did like Model X Tesla? Then they'll probably get arrows slung at them for being like elitist because they're promoting a 90,000 thousand dollar car or something like that so so like i get it we should that's what journalists should do is point out like things that are actually big corporations politicians things that are you know going against the public good but that's where i didn't like this is it didn't talk necessarily about a little bit of the public good that rei is trying to actually do but like i mean for instance so like rei last year produced 1.1 3 million metric tons of CO2, 97%, which comes from their supply chain. Um, This is all public information they put out there, which I think is, you know, ballsy as it is just to put that out there. Whereas the coal industry produced 973 million metric tons. So it's kind of like there's 60% of the energy sector emissions. So you're like, maybe we should continue to focus on coal. <laughs> like like this has a bigger impact than pointing out, like finger pointing at REI. So yeah, I, it's again, I, I get the debate between personal um, kind of expenditures and personal carbon footprints versus like systematic change. There is some good to, you know, doing pointing fingers at personal change and like almost following through on people's own, um, goals to lower their own carbon footprint, but you know, ultimately what's really going to change everything is systematic change. So it's, it just falls into this debate that's continuing to happen with, with the subject of climate change. Yep. All right. Where are we going next? Uh, this, uh, second article I found, which is from one of my favorite, um, writers kind of in the outdoor space, um, is Andrew Bishart. He's a climbing journalist and climbing, uh, writer. Um, he'll write for the New York times for outside and then for his own personal blog, uh, which he calls evening sends. Um, he also has a really good podcast for kind of climbing dorks out there, um, called the, the run out. Um, it's actually also I'm not a super big climbing dork, but I really enjoy it because they they just uh, they bring up really good issues. And this issue that he talked about is very specific to climbing called the article's title was the gift of spray and climbing dark soul. So it was talking very specifically about climbing. But to me, it was very like 
it talks about a, a larger issue when it comes to outdoor sports in general. And in in climbing, spray is considered like boasting. That's like the slang for, you know, boasting about what you're doing. And the article goes, um, it's on Evening Sends, which I um, yeah, will be in the show notes. Uh, I suggest everyone read it. But it kind of goes through kind of like the the new age of of social media of talking about everything you do of self promotion and um you know he self actualizes it and they're saying like he's not a fan of that like a lot of people but then he goes into the opposite side of it and uh, kind of profiles uh, a climber an older generation climber who is like almost allergic to spray to the point where he, like he would not talk about anything that he has done in climbing into pretty much anyone. And it goes into like kind of the almost the the psychological damage that is done to him and how he almost feels like alienated from the sport, almost bitter at the sport, because he went to the opposite way of of if we're talking about oversharing from like influencers to the the like equal and opposite reaction is just never talk about what you do and just do it, but never say anything. And kind of the, the effects that has had on them, um, which I found just really, really interesting because, you know, so many people, we just bag on influencers and bag on social media, but then it profiles the opposite and how that can have a pretty negative effect on individuals and kind of the community as a whole. I guess I'm kind of curious to hear from your end, you know, I mean, obviously you are active on social media. It's literally part of your job. You've got this 50 project going. I mean, I guess I'd be curious to hear just from a personal point of view, how you personally kind of either resonated or balked against some of the things being brought up in the article. Yeah, no, I mean, this is kind of my life and my job. And like, especially these days as an athlete, we are, I wouldn't say forced to share, but it's in your best interest as in your job to to share what you do and to put it out on social media. I mean, I've been able to utilize social media to really kind of re not revamp my career, but really accelerate it. And I think it's been very powerful for me. But I also see like, I don't like it a lot. And I think you and I were having discussions this week. And I, I say I'm like, God, I, I hate it at times, um, but I do it because it's, it is part of my job, but I do have barriers. And, you know, one of the things with the 50 project that gets brought up and I can see that, like if I'm in a zone like Montana or the Tetons or someone like I can see people that love that area and they get pretty apprehensive when I show up in town. And I've heard of people talking about like, oh, these routes that you've done and have shown in your episodes are definitely more crowded now. And I like I sympathize with that. And I'm very, you know, moving forward if this project moves past it, like I'm going to be very careful not to, you know, blow out spots that aren't known. My justification for blowing out these spots, you're like, well, it's in a book that's been out for 10 years. It's sold over 10,000 copies and that it's called a classic and these lines truly are classics they're very rarely hidden and the people that wrote about them um like let's say the patriarch in montana like you had legends like christopher christopher erickson they were the ones kind of giving those up and so i'm just like okay well i'll talk about those lines and show it in video form but one of the reasons i don't want to necessarily blow up spots 
that aren't necessarily known has nothing to do with like crowding and individual experience of other people that are already there, but more has to do with the individual experience that you will have in the mountains. And this is something that Jeremy Jones taught me pretty early on. Um, there was this line called the dirty tooth in Tahoe. He was the first guy to ride it. It's this like super steep, quick, uh, pretty short technical line. And uh, I remember asking him, he was the first to send on it. And I was like, where is that? I was like 18. He's like, ah, you'll find it. And I'm like, oh, come on. Like, we're buddies. Like, well, tell me. And he kind of told me, he's like, because you enjoy it much more if you find it for yourself. He's like, I don't want him to just give it up. And and I remember it was, took me like a year to actually find the line. And I found it and I wrote it and I was like super fired up. I told him about it. And it was kind of this like aha moment of like, yeah, this like, this discovery that you can get by not necessarily giving the beta straight to someone is really, really valuable. One, you know, we've talked about this a lot too, that like brings in the safety aspect, the experience, like you're going to have to spend time out in the mountains and spend, have the knowledge to like navigate through them to find a very like cool specific line and, you know, work your way there. But then two, it just gives this like, incredible value of like when you come around the corner and there it is you're like oh my god and you just like i i almost don't want to rob that from people because there's so many times within my own career that i've had that same feeling where you just show up and you've been looking for a line or if it's you've never even you know there's no knowledge of a line but you find something that you're just like that is so cool and that's where i'm like I don't necessarily want to share everything and give the beta to every single line you do because I find that as such a big part of backcountry skiing and exploration is that like that self discovery. So, so when it came to this, like just like any good, you know, kind of advice you get, it's like all in moderation, like spraying about everything is not the best thing to do. One, because I do think, like I just said, it takes away from the individual experience. But then on the second side of it is like going to just go super silent about it. You're like, well, what's the value in that as well? So um, as you can see in the article, it kind of like almost destroys this, this climber. Like he has... He has a bitter relationship with the sport in the community because of his kind of aversion to saying anything and being a part of the, the, the climbing community. Yeah, it's funny, like, just what a struggle it can be for people to just be, like, grateful in, like, an appropriate sense or happy in an appropriate sense. I think Andrew raises some really good questions in this article along those lines and and kind of a related thing. This is a, a I'm going to veer us a bit still talking about the article, which is another really well written article by Andrew. But one of the things that kind of struck me was he sort of says repeatedly in this article, right, like climbing is an absurd and kind of pointless activity. And I found myself being like, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, but on the other hand, I, I kind of was like, all right, Andrew, stop saying that. And I, it was just an interesting sort of visceral reaction reading it because, I mean, in a way we could say this about backcountry skiing. We could say this about inbound skiing. And frankly, I think we could say this just about every single activity that it, that somebody does as part of like 
human existence. And so in other words, I guess what I found myself bristling at a little bit is the idea that there are all these activities that clearly have a point or that clearly are not absurd, unlike, say, climbing, you know, or ski touring. And I'm I'm a little bit more, and this is, I go back to like, you know, my favorite, so I'm going to mention them again. I think this is something that Henry David Thoreau, in his book Walden, does better than just about any book that I've ever read. In terms of talking about meaning and where we find meaning, and I think one of the profound things about Walden is there's a, I'm going to sum this up badly, so you should just go read the book if you haven't, but it's basically like, you know what? Don't worry too much about what other people might deem as being pointless or absurd. If it's a thing that you do, and if it's a thing that you are passionate about, consider yourself blessed and pursue that thing, right? In a whatever responsible manner. And we've talked about what does responsible mean, you know, and that's a bit of a moving target, you know, for folks and particularly in the arenas that we play in. But I don't know. I just found myself being like, hey, Andrew, it's good. I'm not here to like absolutely keep shouting that anybody who's passionate about climbing, just keep in mind, it's a pointless activity. It's like, I don't know, man, I think in this world, wherever you're finding joy and those things that you are personally passionate about, I would worry more about celebrating those things, appreciating them, enjoying them, figuring out what it means to do those things in a responsible way rather than being like, yeah, man, I love climbing, but yeah, I know, I know it's, it's pretty absurd and pointless. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty ready to just ditch the la- that last part. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally understand that because, and I, I get it, but I think there's also this thing, like I've struggled with that at times in my life. Like you're like, I've made a career out of essentially having fun. And so you sometimes think you're like, well, what's the point of that? That seems like an entirely selfish pursuit. And you really have to kind of de- dive deep into the meaning of these sports and these activities. And ultimately, like you think I look at it as like, well, one, this brings me happiness. This brings my wife happiness. This brings my community happiness. And there's like literally like studies that have been done on mountain towns and how mountain towns have a happier index, living index than people that live in cities. So at that point, you're like, well, cool. Then we're all living happier and friendlier lives. So is that the point? You're like, well, if that's the point, that's a pretty good point. So I like, I really get what he says with that climbing is an absurd and pointless activity because I look at skiing as this, uh, the same. And you kind of can sometimes struggle with like devoting your life to what ultimately doesn't seem like it's solving the world's problems. But then if you start to think about it and you have to kind of like go into, go into it as Walden did of living in a cabin on a lake and thinking about what's the point of this. And, um, you know, that's, I, I think it is in a kind of existential crisis is that quite often people that devote their their lives to the outdoors end up having um what is the point of this all um and then you start getting into like we're going really deep on point of life and whatnot but uh to me like i i like pointing that out because to me i read that quite often as like don't take it so seriously because so many people do take it so seriously and almost the thesis of this article being like 
the the culture that develops around these outdoor outdoors activity and people taking it so seriously where you know a climber will never like literally never talk about what he's ever done because that's like the serious cultural line he cannot cross and bringing up climbing as an absurd and pointless activity you're like well yeah because what's the point of keeping it quiet like what a what are you trying to do with this thing and what i harken back to is like that whole community happiness and mountain town happiness is like ultimately that's the point we're just trying to live like a a life with with passion with fun and come out on the other end happy so um i that's where like the article like taking something like social media spray and secrecy it was just a well well-written discussion that makes you makes you think and i I love articles like that that make you think i'm gonna go last word on this and then we'll move on but basically and again i think this is where i think thoreau puts this forward well and so if if i'm paraphrasing him or or sort of missing his point then i'll claim it as my own but i'm willing to give his him credit i think this is his point but i just want as many human beings out there in the world who are really passionate when they wake up in the morning to go do whatever their sort of, you know, what whatever their vocation is, right, which literally means calling, like whatever their career is, whatever they're doing when they wake up in the morning, I actually would argue that the world would be better if more people were psyched on whatever it is that they were going to go do that day. So I want really passionate doctors I want really passionate scientists. I want really passionate climbers. And if for whatever reason you're in your profession and you're just like, well, I'm doing this. I mean, I'd way rather be climbing right now, but it's more respectable for me to be going over this legal contract. I'm like, that's where I think that's where I'd like to see people really reevaluating what they're doing. Not so much the people who are passionate and being like scolding them for being passionate about the wrong stuff. I guess that's my final takeaway. If, if that made any sense. No, totally. I agree. I think you, a reason to wake up in the morning to like, go get the day is a, you know, a good way to live your life. And then, you, you know, if you're waking up just like, what the hell am I doing here? Then yeah, that's not necessarily equates to a happy life. So I like the way you phrase that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the it would be a better world if we had more people spending their time doing things. So that's my real argument here. And I'm sorry, I feel like I've been pretty inarticulate, but I think we would actually have a better, happier world if more people were really, truly doing those things or figuring out, and it's not always easy, but figuring out how to be engaged in the things they most want to be engaged in, whether that's climbing, whether that's writing, you know, and, and again, I hope, and I'm sure there are, there are scientists, there are people looking for cures to, you know, quote unquote, important diseases. There are passionate people fully engaged in that work and thank God for them. You know what I mean? That's my kind of take about how would we actually get to like a better world with happier people and maybe, frankly, a less snarky, bitter society, which we were just talking about a little bit ago. I don't know. <laughs> That's my take. Yeah. 
No, it's a good take. And I think that leads us into our next article, which uh, I'll kind of like, I'll frame it, but you you should talk about it a little bit because this uh, involves what you just talked about, snarkiness um, and passionate people um, and curing diseases. So um, this was about uh, Mount Bohemia, which is up in Michigan, um, and a lifetime giveaway contest for a lifetime ski pass if you can prove you've gotten vaccinated so you were the one that found this and i kind of want to hear that yeah how you found this and what you took from it yeah so want to give credit where credit is due zach schwab sent me this and put this on my radar and we'll include a link to the instagram post that zach sent me and so you should check this out but yeah mount bohemia in michigan and i'll just read here from the post, they said, help us and we help you. Bohemia is going to give away one lifetime season pass in our quote, get COVID vaccinated contest. Simply get fully vaccinated, then go to the contact us form on our website and fill it out. And in comments, simply write, I got my full COVID vaccine shot. So please enter me for a chance to win a lifetime season pass. And I saw that and I was like, that's kind of great. Maybe lots of ski areas should be doing that, you know? And then two things here. And, and as Zach wrote me, he's like, yeah. And then the comments section just devolves into an utter catastrophe, basically. So, I, I mean, one, I guess we could talk about comments sections. The other things, though, that we should touch on is this whole issue of because it's everywhere in the news now, like this incentivization to go get a vaccine shot. So I don't know, where do you want to go, Cody? Yeah, well, I mean, good on, I think, Mount Bohemia for doing this. I think it's like a quirky, fun idea. And like, sure, it's great, like gives people a, a benefit. What I do also think it does is like what you just said, is it like kind of shows the failure of incentivizing the vaccination process because you know some of the data i've seen what's it like 56 percent of people as of like right now this week have gotten at least one shot um 50 of americans 56 well which is really good that's pretty impressive but you know to get to our herd immunity to get this gone you know we might need in the 70s to 80s um and some of the data i've seen there's like you know a small percentage of people that are just absolutely not getting the vaccine and then there's this like pretty decent chunk around 10%, maybe a little less than that, that are like hesitant, but kind of need some need some incentive. So like, um, is that a free ski pass to Mount Bohemia? Will that get like, maybe 10 people that were hesitant about it? Maybe I don't know. But ultimately, what I thought about it is that just showing some of the failures of incentivizing um, on the national scale. Um, and some of the problems I even have with it, like, one of the things that I think is perplexing myself and a lot of people is like the messaging that like go get vaccinated, but then nothing's going to change after like you still got to wear a mask. You still got to walk. You can't go to restaurants. We're still not opening this up. Like there's this kind of like kind of double like. I don't know, like double messaging of saying like, go get vaccinated, but nothing's going to change. Like, how does that actually really like incentivize it to like as much as we praised Dr. Fauci early on. And of course he made mistakes like any scientist makes. And that's like kind of the difference between our culture these days is like, if you understand science, there's going to be mistakes and he's had some missteps, but you kind of like ultimately he's trying to help. But one of the things I thought about recently, he came out, he said he's fully vaccinated, but still wouldn't go to a restaurant still wouldn't go to any crowded places and you're like 
well, then what message is that sending to our world and our, our society that like get vaccinated, but nothing's going to change? So again, going to this, like you can support somebody, but also disagree with them, which I think is a big problem with our society, um, is that like, yeah, I support what Dr. Fauci is doing, but I also disagree with that statement that he made. Um, and then this failure of trying to incentivize vaccination. And then it's kind of being put on private companies like a ski resort to try and incentivize it. So that's one of the things that it kind of brings up these larger picture issues of like, you know, who who is creating this? Like we who is creating these incentivizations? Like we shouldn't rely on individual companies to to create, you know, the the incentive for you know our national health <laughs> so but we also you're like we got to put this onus on the 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 federal government our local governments our state governments so um kind of brings up some bigger questions to me well yeah and i guess to just you kind of touched on this but to to crystallize this i mean why do we need incentivization at all like wasn't the whole point of the last year if we like can just find a vaccine, we all take it and we get to return to normal society and go to restaurants and meet up with people and we get herd immunity and like, you know, we're good. And so I guess I found it, you know, perhaps I'm, I'm off here, but the number of people that are still like, yeah, I'm not getting that thing felt to me a bit like, wow, we've really politicized science now and this felt kind of disturbing like i because I, I thought we all wanted the same thing right like a return to normalcy the folks that didn't like wearing masks or whatever it was like don't impinge on my freedom it's like yeah i like freedom too and i'd love to get past all the mask stuff and the rest and it, you mean if i just go get a couple of these shots the scientists are telling me we're good that was kind of all the in incentive i personally needed so what am what am i missing here yeah i don't know i mean this is part of what i think so many people question about our modern society is like what why why don't you get this and i get like being skeptical like one again going to this like both sides thing like one i can be incredibly distrustful of big pharma and think that they have corrupt practices that, that are putting profits over people's health um, while also being like, yeah, this is an incredible invention. And these scientists that created this vaccine are brilliant and they're doing something that is, has a global good, you know? So you're like, I can both be distrustful and also realize that this thing is, is going to be good for our world. Whereas like people are so locked in, they're like, nope, big pharma is corrupt and they're horrible and they're poisoning us. And so I will never take this vaccine. You're like, well, come on. Like we can, we can get, we can, there's nuance to this and we can get both sides of this. Um, so yeah, again, that question of why people don't want to get vaccinated, that's, that's a much deeper question that says a lot more about our society than anything else. Um, I just think I'm like, why are we, why are we having to rely on private companies like Mount Behemoth to incentivize it when that incentivization that you just said, which is like, let's get back to normal life should be incentive for just getting this over with and everyone taking a shot. I don't know, man. But anyway, I actually love what Mount Bohemia is doing here. I actually, I'm going to send in a card. I would love to win a lifetime pass to Mount Bohemia. I've never skied there. I would love to check it out. I mean, actually, if I won a lifetime pass, I'd probably just, we'd probably put it up 
as like one of our giveaways or something. I wouldn't keep it, but I I would love to come check out your ski area sometime, Mount Bohemia. So we'll we'll see if we can ever make that happen. So if private companies are the ones incentivizing people to go get a vaccine, I think giving away a lifetime pass is a pretty sweet incentive. So good good on you for that. Yeah, I will say actually, I've always had Mount Bohemia on the list. I've actually pitched it for film projects in the past because they like supposedly have like some of the steepest terrain in the Midwest. They have like cat skiing there. I've always been like, oh, this place kind of yeah. looks rad to go go check out. I've always wanted to see kind of the Midwest skiing scene. So, um, yeah, one day maybe we should get out there. Ooh, that would be fun. So the next article that we uh, kind of our good old Blevins Corner, which was just a, a really cool article um, that I saw that was about Leadville introducing the concept of a gear library. So what it is, the headline is Leadville's gear lending library is tear- tearing down barriers to build a new generation of outdoor adventures. So essentially acting like a library, you pay in, get like a library card, and then you have access to a bunch of outdoor equipment. And from what it looks like up in Leadville, they've got some pretty good equipment from snowshoes to backpacks to sleeping bags, stuff to get outside pretty easily and at a very, very low cost. So it's kind of looking at something of like a year trying to lower the barrier entry to outdoor sports, which I, you know, is awesome. Um, The thing that it brought up to me, it was like, yes, this is one little part of it, but this is a conversation that I think a lot of people in the outdoors have been having for quite a long time of all these barrier entries to outdoor sports, um, including just like season pass costs, uh, living costs, uh, hotel costs. Like this is one little part of it, but you still have to get up to Leadville to go or live in Leadville to even have access to this. And there's so many more barriers to entry. How do we break this down a little bit more? Um, you know, it's to me like a little good, cool story, but you, it starts to bring up everything else that is a massive barrier to entry to, to these outdoor sports. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I sat here with the clearly great answer to this question, you know, myself and we actually, you know, Luke Hopp and I just recorded a gear 30 episode yesterday where uh, we were fielding some questions from listeners and someone was just like, what do you recommend in terms of trying to get, you know, an AT setup that doesn't break the bank? And we kind of went through that. But of course, as soon as we're talking about backcountry skiing, we got to start with the education part of that, which requires time and some money, you know. And so there are no question hurdles. I mean, to be fair, this isn't merely a question in the outdoor industry, right? If I was like, hey, Cody, it seems like the whole world is going digital. I'd like to become a computer programmer, you know, like well, there's certain barriers there as well. And so I, I guess that's a very obvious point. You know, and we've, you and I have talked about this. I mean, we've, we've talked about the cost of season passes at ski areas or lift tickets, right? I frankly thought it was pretty interesting. Epic Pass announced a month or two ago that they were actually lowering their prices and they got a shit ton of blowback about that for lowering the price. Right. And so I think I think we're just radically confused there or there. I should say there's a lot of confusion about what do we actually want or how do we achieve this? Because I was like, well, 
because if I don't know, and that was a case where if Epic passed, did you want them to raise their prices? Would that have made you happy? I think the answer would be no. But there was a lot of blowback from people who were not psyched that they actually made it, quote unquote, more affordable. So I'm, I find myself at a bit of a loss. Yeah, because and I think I've had this debate multiple times and I don't know the answer to it as well, because I've had that same debate with people, uh, locals to Squaw Valley that were like, I, I remember sitting on a chairlift once with Scott Gaffney and this is when uh, ski resort prices or their lift pass was $1,800 and the place was empty. And now they're far cheaper with a with an icon pass and the place is packed. So you're like, cool, we lowered the barrier to entry, but now it, the, the experience isn't as good. But, you know, maybe the experience is better for people that actually had never had the chance to ski. And it's just us locals who are like, what the hell? You know, now it's more crowded. Um, I don't know the answer, but I do know that the it's not necessarily like Vale's not doing this out of the kindness of their heart to try and open their, you know, their ski resorts to the masses. Like they're doing it for profit. And that's what everyone sees through is that like, yeah, we lowered our prices. You're like, well, that's because you're going to make more money off of this model um, as opposed to being like creating a uh, maybe a tiered system where or you have giveaways or you have like, hey, you're a, you know, come from a lower income family or from a, um, your disadvantaged youth or, you know, you're a college student or high school student will create passes for you. No, they're doing it just for a profit model. So that's why everyone can blow back on it because you're like, this isn't this, this is, you know, seems like the same answer to two different questions, but the, the answer to those two different questions is two different answers. So, um, you know, I, I, Look at it as like, I don't know the answer. You know, I, I think about quite often, like one of the things that, you know, athletes, we talk about like these really national issues and there's a lot of athletes that are activists for national issues like climate change, politics and whatnot. But one of the things that is affecting people the most the people that we surround ourselves with is like affordable living in mountain towns. And why are we not act? Why are we not activists for that? You know, the biggest thing is because I don't know what the answer is. Like, I want to make Tahoe uh, a semi affordable place to live, not where, you know, I want it to be where my friends can who grew up there and who are have pretty much blue collar jobs and want to be able to just live their life happily, be able to own a home and, you know, retire off a normal income in a mountain town, which added it as it is right now is completely impossible. You know, there's just these, this, this cost kind of this cost situation in mountain towns that is just like, it's not really that sustainable. And when you look at things like this gear library, you're like, cool, we're getting more people out there and, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Education should come alongside with that, but then brings up all the bigger issues of like just living in mountain towns ain't easy. Well, maybe for now, what we should do is just encourage people to go read this article about these gear libraries and, you know, let's monitor how, you know, these programs, if we see more of these programs cropping up, we can start monitoring their success rate and the rest. You know, kudos to all those people doing this. And because this is a like tangible attempt to try to reduce some of the friction and, and diminish the barriers and obstacles here. And so, yeah, just just in that, that deserves a lot of praise. And 
you know, let's see how this goes. But who knows? Maybe we'll see gear libraries popping up in more and more communities. And turns out that will be a very positive step forward. Totally. Like I, it just makes me think of like a lot of profiles I read both on like, uh, climbers to skiers and whatnot. And so many of them start with like, I moved from the Midwest and bought a pair of skis at a ski swap for $5 and bought a pair of ski boots for $10. And then all of a sudden I fell in love with it. Um, so, you know, that story we want to keep to live on. That person then became like uh internationally famous outdoors person. And it started from this unbelievably low barrier to entry. So having these kind of things like a gear library, you know, it, it continues the sport in a positive way. So um, yeah, kudos to them. And then we'll talk about, I guess, products still for our, for our last uh, topic, but products in a much different way. And it's kind of funny that I feel like this happened so long ago, but this story has been going on for so long that I realized it did finally just happen. Um, and this was covered in multiple, you know, uh, outdoor news outlets, but from Outside Magazine, the headline, Peeps, Black Diamond, Voluntarily Recall Avi Beacons. So after... Um, I guess that would be starting in October when this issue was first raised um, publicly. Um, it had gone back even further than that to about uh, April, May of last year, where it was raised this issue of the Peeps DSP Pro Beacon having issues was raised to Peeps and uh, Black Diamond. But then that went public uh, last kind of, yeah, last fall. And now... We are here, April, when they finally recalled the beacon. And I say finally because there was a massive effort, I would say, on a lot of people's part to uh, get them to finally pull this beacon off the market. I got to say, I just don't understand this. I just don't understand this. I don't think any of us did. Like, I don't, I mean, I, I just know, like, I've worked with beacon and like airbag companies, multiple different ones over the time. Almost every single one of them has had some sort of recall. It's kind of the the game you're playing. And it's like, it sucks because you're like, they're literally trying to make life-saving products. And, you know, they're, it's not like a massive market for these things. These aren't like billion dollar companies. These are companies that are making like 10 to $20 million. I mean, Black Diamond is a lot bigger and it's a publicly traded company. So maybe that has something to do with this, but like the recall game is a part of it. And that's why I think, well, you said you don't get it. I don't think any of us did. Why they were so hesitant to, to recall it. Um, you know, some of the messaging that was coming out early on of like saying like, no, this beacon's safe, but you know, if you want to trade it in, you can trade it in. And it's like the, the mixed messaging that was put out there, the fact that there was reported many, many issues of this beacon, including the most famous one, which was Nick McNutt, who last March was buried in an avalanche and his beacon turned off or it turned to send uh, to uh, search mode, I believe, while he was buried in an avalanche. And due to a lucky probe strike, they were able to find him and dig him out before he died, like he most likely would have because his beacon had turned off. So there, I mean, I can say, like, I didn't put it out super publicly at times, but the amount of messages I got of people saying, like, yeah, I didn't know it, but my I would come back at the end of the day and my beacon was like beeping or all of a sudden I realized it was in a different mode. It would turned off or it was in uh, search mode. And 
they didn't necessarily question it. They're just like, well, that's weird. And then just continue to use it. I mean, I can, there was countless messages that came that way and many personal antidotes along that same side to the point where you're like, no, this really, really has uh, this issue. This product has an issue. And the fact that it took them this long to actually put out a recall to me, like, I, I don't get it. I don't know why they were. Um, obviously, there was some financial incentive to not. As like that's the only thing I can think why. But then you're just like you're putting people's lives at risk for your own, for your bottom line, and that's where you're like, this is unacceptable. Yeah, and I mean, it's like again, I've said. I think you and I were talking about this, you know, some months ago. But it's like. I'm glad there are companies out there willing to make safety devices like beacons. Thank God I would never do it for all the obvious reasons, for all the liability issues and the rest. I would never do it. So I'm glad that they're out there. But it's like, man, if you're going to be in this game and then you have a product that doesn't work. And guess what? Every single manufacturer in the history of time has made a product that wasn't quite right. You know, but in this in this space, this is literally a matter of life and death. And for you to not own it right away, it's like, well, if you weren't willing to do that, you shouldn't be playing in this space. And frankly, just from a PR point of view, how many people are now? It's like you develop a reputation. And it's like, if this is how you responded to the, you know, when there was a real problem, what kind of confidence does this instill going forward? I mean, just this is like PR 101 stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I will say I got some other messages on some other products that Black Diamond puts out that this, I think, was a this is kind of a cultural thing within the company because there's some issues with some other products that some ski patrol were bringing up with them. And uh, I got the uh, the email that they that Black Diamond sent back to the um, to the ski patrol that was bringing up this issue, and it was pretty much carbon copy the way that they handled this uh, this Black Diamond or the Peeps DSP um, beacon. So that's kind of led me to believe like there's something internally where they don't want to admit fault, um, which, like you said, I think is just it's completely irresponsible for playing in this game, and it's just it's again it's just weird to me because like outdoors people and the companies that they love like there's like a lot of like tie-in with them and people you know people love black diamond if you're a climber you're like yeah man i'm a black diamond cam guy or you know i'm a wild country cam guy you're kind of like you i'm a north face ski uh like i love their clothes or whatever it is like you can you, there's this like connection with the the companies that make the gear that you use to go pursue it and so when a company breaks that trust like to me like I feel like if they would have just came out with a recall right off the bat, people would be like, yep, okay, that's part of the thing. Let's deal with this. And I think they just did a massive disservice to their own company and the the, the lack of trust that I've heard throughout the entire industry that people now have with Black Diamond and PSP or and Peeps is just, it's more damaging than they ever could have had if they just recalled the thing right off the bat. And that's why, again, like what you said, why did it take, why I just don't get it. I don't get why it took this long. I will say, and like, I mean, this recall too, it's not even necessarily like they they created a hard case for it that then kind of locks the the switch from off to uh, search. So you actually have to pull this thing out to actually 
to pull the beacon out to get it to change, which is great. It's kind of, it's almost a little bit of a Band-Aid fix, but it actually is fixing the problem. Um, so it's still not even like a full recall, but they did go through, uh, you know, the government's recall programs on it. So it kind of, it, they actually for, had to publicly admit that you should not use this beacon, which again was the first time they ever said, do not use this beacon since this issue was brought up. But man, I, yeah, I just don't, I don't get it. And this is, you know, we talked about this earlier, but um, kind of wanted to bring it up. And we talked about like cancel culture and slinging arrows at companies and whatnot. And I guess this is kind of something where that worked um, because there was an issue. Multiple people verified that this was an issue, both anecdotally and media companies doing tests with it. Um, you know, like Lou Dawson and Wild Snow doing tests with it. Everyone trying to like figure this out on their own. Um, there was an issue with it. And by slinging arrows publicly, it actually worked and it got it recalled and, you know, hopefully potentially saved somebody's life. I, I don't, we don't know that, but we just know that there was an issue with this beacon. And the fact that they finally admitted to it is, is really good because we just, you know, we didn't want people out there using this beacon. Cause I mean, one of the things we saw, like after this was brought up, uh, like McNutt was messaging me saying like, yeah, he's seen people now like selling those beacons on like eBay and whatnot. And you're like, great. You're just selling it to people that don't know that this is an issue. So and that's what a recall actually does is it just stops that issue that like you're not, you know, bring them all back. So uh, again, really weird. Glad that there's finally some sort of end to it. And I, unfortunately for the product, I think there's, or for the product, there's an end, but unfortunately for the, the brand, I think it's going to do some pretty lasting damage to them. Next topic. This is a sentence I never thought I would hear myself say, but, um, Hey Cody, let's talk about sex. Oh yeah. So the, um, I was like, yeah, this article by Cy Whitling, who's doing some great things. Uh, you could do a thing on new schoolers got sex in the ski touring. I don't really have much to say about it <laughs> other than it was genius yeah. and it was really funny. And, uh, Cy Whitling has been doing like great kind of like comics and memes and the, the articles like this i just urge everyone just go read it because it's, it's hilarious um we'll put it but yeah again we'll put the link in the show notes just go read it i, I was honestly trying to come up with more analogies for sex and ski touring which <laughs> this whole article is based around is like how sex and ski touring are very similar but i couldn't because i think i nailed it no no take other than just go read the article you know sai is a former managing editor at blister and so oh. while I would like to say that I taught him everything he knows, I definitely never talked to Sai about sex. So I, I can take zero credit for this one, but it's it's both funny and accurate, right? I mean, like, and again, I, I don't think we need to paraphrase the article, but we will link to it. And good job, Sai. The one thing I will say, and if Luke Coppa was here right now, he would absolutely be trying to turn my mic off. Again, we just had this Gear 30 conversation and once again, people were kind of bringing up the tech binding issue and this analogy breaks down fast and maybe we still will cut this, but skiing a pin binding, there's an equivalent kind of to like, it's like having sex with a condom. They feel different. <laughs> <laughs> and this breaks down because like that's actually a safer thing to do unlike 
a pin binding versus an alpine binding. I'm just putting it out there. Yeah, I thought it would be the analogy would be it's like having sex without a condom because you're kind of like you're like, yeah, it feels great and it's really awesome. But you're taking some risk. I I don't know that. But yeah, this has already gone deeper than I thought I was going (laughs) to go. And I feel uncomfortable and awkward. (laughs) We're going to everybody ignore the last 60 seconds of this. Yeah, that's my best advice. Maybe we just quickly move on to some talk of media recommendations. Yeah, yeah, let's let's just uh, kill this awkwardness and just go talk about something else, (laughs) please. Okay, what have you been watching or listening to or reading? Uh, Let's see, I actually just started reading for, which is kind of funny because it came on TV the other day and I was like, I got to read that book, but I just started reading Black Hawk Down, which I was like, I kind of wanted something like, I've been a lot of very serious, very, uh, yeah, like very serious kind of nonfiction books about big worldly issues and just to go read something that's just like this kind of page turner, like Black Hawk Down, I, I'm really happy about. And actually uh, know and have met the guy that, I'm forgetting, Danny, I feel like his name was, who played, who was played by Tom Sizemore in the movie. He's a base jumper and he was good friends with JT Holmes and he lives in Utah. He's a skier as well. Um, so kind of a little bit of a connection. I remember drawing a long drive with him, talking to him, and it was like... Yeah, that guy's stories are pretty, pretty incredible. So I uh, started reading Black Hawk Down. Um, uh, do you have any, have you been, what have you been reading? You you got some in the notes about a blister book club. So what's that? Very happy to be announcing that we're bringing back the, the blister book club. We kind of fired this up and then got busy with a bunch of stuff. And I'd had on the blister podcast, Andrew Alexander King. And if you guys don't know who Andrew is, or if you haven't listened to that conversation, you 100% should. Andrew is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And long and short, I'll give you the quick backstory, but we were having a lengthy text exchange, as we sometimes do, and I had written some long thing, and he just wrote back, do you like philosophy? Question mark. And it's like, well, Andrew, yes, I do. And I, I told him a bit more about my own background. And turns out, Andrew is a huge fan of Marcus Aurelius and the book that we now call The Meditations. And we, I freaked out and got all excited about this. So I was like, Andrew, will you do a Blister Book Club episode with me? on the meditations. And so on May 24th, so that's like two two weeks coming up here, we are going to be airing a blister podcast. It's going to be me and Andrew talking about Marcus Aurelius's meditations and why Andrew and I think this is still such a relevant work today. And I couldn't be happier about this. And so it's given me a great, you know, new reason to be going back to the meditations and that's what i've been doing and i'm really looking forward to this conversation that uh that i'm going to have with andrew soon here yeah that sounds cool it's funny like i actually point to one of my favorite books of of all time which sounds just like you know when you kind of you you create your mount rushmore of books and you want to 
put books on there so you sound smart. But um, this actually is one of my favorite books. But the Essaclesis, the Oristia, is one of my favorite books of all time because and it just points back to just kind of some of the, uh, you know, Greek philosophers and just some of the just I mean, these books that stand the test of time. I mean, they're two, three thousand years old and they're unbelievable. So uh, I, I look forward to that conversation. I haven't read the meditation, so maybe I'll just listen to it and then go. Because um, I feel like quite often a lot of those um, philosophy books and I mean, you obviously would. Would do you get your do you get your PhD in philosophy or no? Or do you get your master's? I'm, I'm ABD, all but dissertation. So I did five years five years of grad work at the University of Chicago and but yeah basically discovered the mountains and pieced out um is the short version of that story so but the the project I was working on did come out as a published book so I don't I feel less guilt about sort of bailing but anyway yeah that's my it's a bit of my backstory yeah well, then you probably know, and just I know, like, I don't know, when it comes to reading those kind of books, I feel like having some sort of compendium on the side to like reference and you have to kind of study and like see what that is, uh, you know, what they're exactly referring to. The context of it is is really important. So um, maybe I'll listen to it and then read the meditations. I can download it on, I'll put it on my uh, my Kindle for my upcoming expedition. Oh, nice. And one of the things I will say is this, I mean, one, a lot of Stoicism and Stoic works are among the most accessible works of like in the history of philosophy, I would say. And and the Meditations is definitely an example of that. So I'm sure that certain specific references might, you know, might be lost on a person. But this is an incredibly uh, accessible work of philosophy, I would say. And um and and absolutely a classic. And uh, anyway, so yeah, I, people should not be intimidated by this by this book. Of of all the books in philosophy, this could actually be a really great starting point. So if anybody's listening and interested, pick up a copy. We'll include a link. Actually, there's a great article on Medium that proposes three different translations of the meditations so we'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes and um anyway should be really fun and again andrew is an incredible guy and i i just can't wait to hear sort of how he thinks about the meditations and why why they're so meaningful to him so anyway hey shifting gears quickly I needed to ask you because this came up in an article I read this past week. It was actually about an Air Force crew that named their plane the Pickle Rick. And this was a shout out to Rick and Morty. And it's kind of an amazing article. We'll link to this as well. But then I was like, you know what? I have to confess, like, I mean, I've seen little snippets of Rick and Morty, but I've never watched it. Have you? No, I have not. And I see a lot of like reference into it in pop culture, but now I've never got myself to, to watch it. And the only like modern cartoon I've watched was Bob's Burgers. And I used to watch it when I was working full time at Arcade and I was really stressed out and I would get home and turn on Bob's Burgers and it was like brainless entertainment. But I don't know, maybe there's something with Rick and Morty that definitely has a, a big reference in pop culture. So I know I haven't watched it. Okay. Well, maybe listeners should weigh in if they're like you 100% need to watch this Rick and Morty fans should let us know or if other people are like ah we checked it out don't worry about it you know go back to reading the meditations or something I was just curious so but yeah 
of an Air Force crew named a plane the Pickle Rick. And I watched the snippet of like where the Pickle Rick comes in in Rick and Morty. And it's actually pretty amazing. But apparently the Air Force did not love that that this plane was named after a character in a Rick and Morty show. But anyway, it's kind of awesome. And I think the name is great. I wanted to talk about a show that um, you actually are watching, even though you swore not to watch. Damn it. I hate hate you for this, and I hate myself more. I'm so unhappy about this. Yeah, but I I caved. I caved. So go ahead. Yes, Drive to Survive. I mean, I think it's like the most, it's one of the most talked about shows now. I'm seeing it like, you know, it's three years in. I'm seeing like, you know, we're both fans of like the Ringer Network podcast and like Ryan Rosillo talking about it. I've seen like references on ESPN to it. I've seen now articles talking up about how the growth of the sport of F1 in North America has just been massive and they're all pointing towards uh, Drive to Survive. To the fact that now they're going to have two uh, American events, one in one outside of Austin on the dry, the America's circuit and then one in Miami now. So like this show is showing the model of how, in, how you have like this side kind of behind the scenes uh uh, show can just do such wonders for a sport and so so i'm it's i think the year three it's finally catching on and i'm really happy you're watching it because it's my favorite show it was it's been probably my favorite series and at least and i just blasted through it again you just rewatched it no no we just watched the third season sorry <laughs> yeah okay okay remind me and for in case people don't know the reason i'm so mad is because i've been begging cody and elise to watch the TV show Friday Night Lights for like years now and they haven't. And so in our last reviewing the news, I was like, I am not watching this new show that you love called Drive to Survive. I am holding out until you watch Friday Night Lights. Okay, so I will say I stepped up and so I did the first step, which was like, wait, what show is it streaming on? And it's on Peacock. And I got Peacock a couple, like three, four months ago, because they had a lot of ski racing on and I want to watch ski racing. So it's on there. Uh, we are not home to watch it, but we both committed as of last night to start watching it when we get home uh, this weekend. So we're going to we're going to start. I promise you that. Okay. And my my take on this is, Watch the first three episodes. And if if after three episodes, you're like, I'm not feeling this, then then we can have a talk. I will be incredibly sad because I feel like this should just be in both of your wheelhouses. And so if I'm if I'm wrong about this, I'm like my whole world is like I'm wrong. Probably I have to question everything anyway. Yeah, you should still watch Friday Night Lives. And I haven't gone back. I haven't watched it in some years now. Maybe it feels dated or whatever, but um, I still think it's incredible for anybody who likes football. But my question about Drive to Survive is, like, my interest level in F1 was at zero. Like, I didn't care at all coming into this show. And so I'm curious, if were you, like, already kind of into Formula One? And this show kind of only made you more interested in that world? Or where were you? I was at, well, like when I was in high school, I really liked Formula One. Um, it was often on TV, and so I watched it a ton. And then I would say it went to about 2%. Like, I remember, like, you know, when Lewis Hamilton was signed, and you're like, oh, he seems like everyone's talking about him, the great thing. And I would 
you know, you like see a headline there. You're like, okay, that's where it's at. But it went from, I would say from pretty interested to not almost not interested at all to like full blown fan of the entire sport to the point where Elise is in that same boat as you. She didn't, she didn't know about formula one. And now she's, now we watch every single race. We record them and watch them. And it's just like, now, now, you know, the backstory to and the personality of every driver and what the team is trying to do in this specific race. And it's just, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a model of, uh, it's such a good marketing driver for a, for a sport. And I think more sports should pick up this model. I mean, football kind of has already tried to do with hard knocks but you know like to me i'm looking at like major league baseball and it's the the talk of like the talk of major league baseball is like how would the dying nationally you know like imagine if you had a drive to survive for baseball it would boost the interest in the sport so much but you know there's a lot of hurdles to cross because a lot of these sports and coaches they don't want they don't want their internal dramas on tv they don't want to see their strategies on tv but and i know that was a big hurdle for drive to survive like if you look at the first season compared to the third season first season the three major teams or two of the major teams, Mercedes Benz and Ferrari were not a part of it at all. It was all kind of the small teams. They're like, we don't want that in our, in our freaking garages. And now they're a, a big part of it because I think they've seen the success of it. So, so it's interesting. I have to say, I'm like, I think I'm maybe, I've maybe watched five or six episodes. I'm still, I think I'm still in season one. I haven't finished. I'm one, maybe one episode out from finishing season one. This isn't so far drawing me in in the way that it's like, oh my God, this is this a new, like I'm now this super fan of the sport. To me, it's just been more of like an incredibly well done study into this very weird world. Right. Like, and so there, there's, there's like real value in that. And frankly, I would watch a show about any sport community activity of like anything that's well done and sort of like i don't know if there was a great documentary be about like the sport of high speed knitting which i don't actually think is a thing i think i just made that up like i'd probably watch that if it was like well done and just opened up this world to you but that's where i'm still at of like this is a crazy world and it definitely gives you appreciation of just how much these drivers are putting their life on the line, like every time out. But other than that, I'm like, this is a crazy world. And I didn't know anything about it, but I'm not like, and now I'm a fan and we'll be watching all of the races, but who knows? I mean, we'll, you know, we'll see if that, if that switch ever gets flipped for me. Yeah. No. And that's, I think ultimately the the goal of, of, of a show is just to get you you know, kind of captured by it. And I think the, the avenue that you could go is to super fan or you just, you're like, wow, it's really interesting. I like the, I like the TV show better than I do watching an actual race. So yeah, I think it's a really good show. So do you have, we'll stop talking about this in a second here, but do you have now like a favorite team or a favorite driver in like, you know, not talking about the documentary, but like in real life? Oh yeah, for sure. And it, it was formulated after season one, like who you kind of, at that point, I remember season one ended and you're like, cool, we're going into the next season of racing. Like, who are you going to root for? Um, I, I'm definitely partial to, um, Max Verstappen and the Red Bull team. Um, because really? yeah, yeah. Like, well, there's a multiple layers there. One, you know, you're never going to root for Mercedes Benz because you're like, you know, I respect what they do and they're unbelievable, but like, you, you, that's like saying you're going to root 
for the Yankees or something or root for the Lakers, but you're you're just like, that's kind of lame. So why don't you root for the team that maybe has the chance to dethrone them? Um, and I just like Verstappen. I think he's just an absolute wild card and he's just an absolute maniac. And he's like so crazy focused and just like, I think he's a bit crazy in the head. And that's what I like about him. And then Red Bull too. I mean, like, I mean, I work with Red Bull on projects. I'm not an athlete or anything like that. So I just, I, them as a company, I think they've been supportive of action sports. So I'll support them. Let's put it that way. All right. Any other shows, things we should mention before we sign off here? Um, you know, like I actually got some, I heard some people, I got some messages back saying like, oh my God, zero, zero, zero was amazing. So I was happy to hear that. Um, I haven't really watched too much recently. I think the last month, the last time I talked to you, has been mainly kind of crazy and traveling and, uh, now prepping for this expedition. So I'll actually throw back a story, uh, a show that I watched a while ago that I think is a really, really fun show, um, called Alone. It's on Netflix. It's a reality-based show, survival show. It's like, it's like a blend of survivor and survivor man where they drop off individual people into individual places there. They do the season that's on Netflix out in the uh, north of the Arctic Circle on Great Slave Lake in northern Canada. And they put individuals at like, you know, 20 miles apart. And they say, this is your zone and survive. And you have to you you're allowed to bring 10 items. Um, those 10 items are from a list. And like one of the items is like a knife or one of those items is a fishing line and a hook. You can't bring a gun, but you can bring a bow and arrow like traditional style, like a recurve. And uh, these people are then however, however long you can survive out there is the winner. And it's just like it's kind of crazy because it's uh, one, it shows you like how hard it is to survive on your own and hunt and live and and hunt for your own food, especially in such harsh of a place as the, the Arctic. Um, and then two, it just really gets, uh, I don't know, it gets really, it, it gets deep into some of the stuff where you see like why fat is so important for survival and why, if you have lean meat, like rabbit, how you will end up starving. And it's just like, I think it's just a really good, well done reality show. And, you know, you, you can never know the, the veracity of how true and how much the producers are affecting something or how much assistance they're getting. Cause like every show, like survivor man and Bear, Bear Grylls show, they've always like years later proved like, yeah, they weren't actually doing that and they faked it. Um, there's certain things. So this one doesn't feel like they're faking much. It feels like the most real of, of many of these survival shows. So that's why I ended up liking about it. Interesting. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. Just real quickly. I've also, I've watched three episodes of this new show on HBO called mayor of East town. Don't have a ton to say about it other than I think it's extremely well done, but I'll, you know, if I maybe next or next reviewing the news, if I, if I'm, you know, willing or ready to tell everybody they need to go watch it, you know, I'll, I'll make a stronger pitch there. But, um, yeah, other than that, we're just still, uh, ski touring where we can getting a little bit of biking in canceling trips to Portland. Yeah. That's kind of life around these parts. How about you? Are you, are you actually going to stay put for a bit or are you off at a moment's whim to go, go on your next little adventure? 
Yeah, um, May 15th, I'm taking off to Alaska. Um, we're going to give Mount St. Elias uh, a first attempt. Um, well, not a first attempt in general, first attempt for myself and first attempt for the 50 Project. Um, it is one of the classic lines, and I think it's one of the crux lines of the project. It's one of the most rarely summited big mountains in North America. There's actually really no data on how many people have actually stood on top of that. Estimates are less than 50 people um and it's since its first ascent which was crazy it was in i think the first ascent was in the late 1800s um by the duke of Abruzzi and this like uh crazy crazy kind of method but um since then very few people have, have climbed it and few even fewer people have actually skied it so um may 15th i'm heading up there and you know that's why i'm i'm not just sleeping in this hypoxic tent for the fun of it we're getting prepared for it um and even though it's not that high of a mountain, it's uh, uh it's 18,000 feet, which I think is like right at the border of high altitude. To me, like high altitude starts at 18,000 feet and goes up. Um, you still have to be acclimatized. And, you know, uh, the reason why we're doing this is because this the mountain itself is renowned for having some of the worst weather of any mountain in the world. And some of the stories from friends that have been up there are just like horrendous. And like, there's a chance we could get up halfway and be stuck on the mountain for three weeks and in a snow cave and your tents are collapsed and blown away and shredded because there's 110 mile an hour winds and 10 feet of snow that fell in 36 hours like that kind of stuff happens on this mountain so we're trying to prepare kind of two different plans um, to take off with which is one a rapid alpine style ascent of it and that's where being acclimatized really helps us because instead of getting to 13,000 feet and having to acclimatize for a day uh, we'll be able to just push through and you know get to the summit in a two-day push as opposed to you know making that a three-day push and you know knowing the weather is so bad there we it gives us more margin for error when it comes to it so we're getting acclimatized before we go up there so so if we have a weather window we can really take advantage of it and go for it hard and fast but then we're also have um, logistics and plans in place that if we get stuck in a storm we can just ride out a storm for up to 26 days that's how much food and fuel we're bringing so um and you know if you're really getting stuck out there you you can stretch that out a bit so so yeah the next month um may 15th to june 15th and hopefully not longer we'll see um we're going to be up in alaska and trying trying one of the hardest lines in the project so you're just to be clear you're literally bracketing off or setting aside an entire month to try to get this one line done or you're hoping like if it if it goes well you might you know if you get lucky with with weather and the rest and things are done in one week are you out of there or you would try to tick off a few other things no, we would. The time window is pretty much. This is the only line or mountain that is uh, that was available for us at this time of year. Um, so we would. I mean, yeah. In the most perfect world, we'd show up there, we'd get our stuff prepped, and we'd have a, a week of clear weather, and we could get it done um, very quickly, and we get off the mountain. But we just know that's not necessarily going to be the case. We're pre we're preparing for that to be an option, but we're also preparing to be stuck up on that mountain for quite a long time. So. That's what you kind of got to do with these kind of objectives, you know, like when we did Denali, I mean, I brought we brought a month's worth of stuff up there because that could be what it takes. Um, we did it. We 
skied, climbed and skied in nine days and were off the mountain on day 10. So that can happen. Um, that's what I hope happens. But if not, um, we're prepared to survive up there for quite a long time. So, so yeah, the next time we check in, we'll be after Mount St. Elias. I, w- I won't be watching any TV shows. Hopefully be, I'll probably, uh, I w- will hopefully actually haven't read really any books either, but it could end up reading like six or seven. <laughs> Yep. Well, be sure to get the meditations by Aurelius. Uh, if, yeah. you're, if you're going to get, you know, if you're going to get stuck for a while, I don't know, you did say you wanted to listen to my conversation with Andrew first. So fair, but uh, yeah. Anyway, well, listen, man, as always, I mean, I, I know I don't have to say this to you. I was about to say be safe. I know you will. So maybe I'll just say best of luck with that big venture. Yeah, hope it goes well. Hope you are safe out there and certainly look forward to catching up with you when you when you get back. Yeah, totally. Well, I look forward to that as well. And yeah, just uh, mainly for anything, just everyone send good vibes for good weather. That's the the nickname on Mount St. Elias is Mount St. Deny Us. So um, if we just get some good weather, that's all we're really open for. Hmm. Well, hey, man, you take care. I'm going to let you uh, maybe go crawl back into that that uh, tent of yours. We'll talk to you real soon. Sounds good. That was a good one, Jonathan. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourselves and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.